My guest this week is author, human rights campaigner and co-founder of Hong Kong Watch, Benedict Rogers. Ben, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, delivered the Mansion House speech this week, which is one of the staple foreign policy events of the year. And he used his speech as an opportunity to set out what the UK's position is when it comes to dealing with China. What did you make of the Foreign Secretary's remarks? To be very honest, and, and I have to say, I, I like James Cleverly personally, and I, I don't want to uh, be, be overly critical of him, um, but I did find the speech quite disappointing. Um, disappointing for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, over the last several years, one had felt that the British government uh, was moving in a better direction on China, leaving the so-called golden era of Sino-British relations behind and, and taking a much more uh, critical uh, position. Um, still not doing enough, but 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 moving in a better direction. Um, and I think my problem with his speech was there were, there were a lot of words in the speech that I would agree with, um, but there was almost no... Um, detail of of action. So he talked about speaking up for human rights. He talked about uh, defending national security, but didn't really spell out how we would do that. And then it was also sort of motherhood and apple pie, because he was saying we, we're going to do those things of defend our values, defend our security, um, but we're going to uh, build a better relationship with Beijing at the same time. And obviously reading between the lines, or not even between the lines, it's pretty much clear um, that his focus is 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 on trade and the economic relationship. And I think at a time when the United States has clearly taken a much stronger line, and even the, the European Union, with some exceptions, um, is moving in a better direction, you know, now is not the time to be moving away from our, our allies on this. So I, I have quite a lot of concerns uh, about it, even though the words on the on the page uh, sound sound quite good. Yeah, absolutely. It did give that sort of impression of presenting a certain image, particularly in the lines that were briefed out to the media about how China was creating the biggest military buildup in peacetime when it comes to Taiwan. But as you say, in some areas, it almost seemed to lack substance. But what, one of the things that I found that was quite encouraging to hear from the speech was the Foreign Secretary condemning the Chinese Communist Party's persecution of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang and actually endorsing the United Nations assessment that those actions, quote, constitute international crimes, in particular crimes against humanity. As you just said, it was it was disappointing that he didn't go further, especially when it comes to the issues in Xinjiang. You know, they've got this huge body of evidence, which really does point to a genocide being committed against the Uyghurs, even as we're speaking. So do you think James Cleverly should have actually gone further in his remarks on Xinjiang, actually you know, make that judgment call and take the step in confirming that perhaps it is genocide as the United States has done? I think he should have done. Um, and in, in a sense, he was it was almost felt like he was trying to have it both ways by quoting the United Nations and therefore um, giving the impression that uh, he he recognised uh, the scale of the atrocities. Um, but on the other hand, not actually calling it out as the British government. Um, and uh, as you say, the United States has uh, called it a genocide. Uh, several parliaments around the world have, have done so, including the UK's uh, parliament. Um, uh, and of course, there was the Uyghur tribunal chaired by Sir Geoffrey Nice, which came to the conclusion that it was genocide. So I would have liked him at the very least, to say that the British government uh, recognises uh, crimes against humanity. Uh, and perhaps if he wasn't going to call it genocide himself, he could have at least acknowledged 
the judgment of the Uyghur tribunal um, and, and perhaps offered to uh, engage with the Uyghur tribunal to, to, to look at the claim of genocide uh, further. And the government's always had this circular argument on genocide because they say um, governments don't uh, describe uh, genocide. That's for uh, courts to do. But in the full knowledge that there's no court empowered uh, to do that because the international bodies are hampered by China's veto power or or China's uh, failure to sign up to them. Um, so, um, yes, I would have liked to, him to have gone a lot further and ideally to have called it genocide. This circular approach, as you mentioned, it seems to have spread right, right throughout government as, and even with the prime minister's position, which I'll get on in, onto in a moment. But I just want to pick up on one line in the speech, which I found quite shocking. And I wonder what you'd make of it. It was when James Cleverly said, and I quote, no significant global problem from climate change to pandemic prevention, from economic stability to nuclear proliferation can be solved without China. I mean, it's a heck of a statement to make, but what, what's your thoughts on what is a naive at best assessment on what is frankly our reliance on China? Well, I, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've never been one, uh, and I actually don't know anyone else who, who is one to say we shouldn't talk to China. Of course, we should talk to China. They're a major power. We talked to the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. So no one is suggesting we shouldn't talk to them. And of course, we should talk to them about the issues he mentioned. But I think to suggest that uh, none of these problems can be solved without China, and therefore, we just have to surrender all our other uh, concerns. Um, uh, is extraordinary. Uh, and it's a failure to recognize, actually, that, for example, on climate change, uh, Ch China is, uh, at the moment, part of the problem, not not part of the solution, and is not really showing any signs of being part of the solution. It's, it's almost like China is holding other countries hostage over the issue of climate change, uh, you know, saying, you need us uh, to address this, and therefore, don't, don't put pressure on us on other issues. But in fact, they're actually not doing any of the things we want them to do uh, anyway. Um, and when it comes to the pandemic, well, well, I think we all know what uh, what went on there. And um, I would much rather we we, we um, hold China accountable for its failures over the origins of, of COVID and, and at least put pressure on China to allow an international independent investigation so that we can all learn, learn lessons from that rather than suggesting we just build a better relationship with Beijing and, and um, work with them on future pandemics. Absolutely. And that idea on uh, pandemic prevention, it's, it is interesting. And there's, there's an, a great book from Matt Ridley exploring the, uh, the potential causes of COVID-19 and goes into some of the, if you like, a cover up or some of the at least efforts to restrict access to viewing the data on the virus. But on, on this idea of pandemic prevention, there's all sorts of discussions going on at the moment and it, about future pandemics, preparation for that. Because there is this huge level of secrecy around what the, the, the Chinese government's been doing around this, whether it was a potential lab leak or what, whatever, what, what sorts of safeguards do you think need to be implemented to actually ensure access is available for those from the United Nations, World Health Organization, wherever it may be? Because again, there's rumor mill starts and you get all sorts of theories popping up and even somewhat unverified reports of new viruses popping up every now and again. So to what extent do you think there needs to be a, more of an impetus on allowing access in places like China, but also other more restrictive places like, like North Korea, for example? Uh, absolutely. I think I think there should definitely be um, much greater pressure on uh, allowing access. Uh, and I think one of the 
problems in this is that when when the um, lab leak uh, theory started to uh, be considered, um, and to me, it's I'm not saying it definitively is correct, but it, it it's surely a pretty obvious possibility given that it was a lab in Wuhan uh, that was uh, researching into exactly these kind of viruses. Um, it's entirely possible, and I, I'm not saying it was uh, 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 it was um, deliberate, uh, but it's entirely possible that an accident happened uh, from that that lab. Um, but when that theory was first uh, put out, um, there were a lot of scientists that immediately rubbished the idea and said it can't possibly be that, and that it, that was a sort of conspiracy theory. Um, and now some of those scientists have have started to reverse their position and 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 actually come around to the idea. But I think the reason they were so keen to um, suppress the the discussion of that possibility was that uh, so many international uh, scientists had a stake in it. They were they were partnering with China in some of this research, or they were they were funding it. Um, so I think we ought to review those relationships um, and either put in in place absolute um, insistence that if we're going to partner with China on scientific research. Uh, we we must have uh, absolutely unlimited access, or we withdraw the, those partnerships um, uh, if if they're not going to give us that access. Absolutely, but ju- just to bring it back to a more domestic level, and it, it goes back to what you're saying about the almost circular attitude that the government has when it comes to approaching China. Because last summer during the Conservative Party leadership election campaign, both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak were almost trying to outhawk each other when it came to China and. Rishi Sunak in particular took a very strong stance on China, going as far as to call uh, the country, quote, our number one threat. Since he actually entered office, he he appears to have softened that position quite considerably by shifting that idea of it being our number one threat to just calling for robust pragmatism. Do you agree? Do you think he's perhaps gone soft on China or has certainly weakened that position? Yes, I do. Uh, sadly, I mean, I have to admit that um, I was slightly surprised by the position he took in the leadership election because I had always thought that he was more in the kind of uh, realpolitik, uh, let's do business with China uh, camp. Um, mm. uh, but I was pleasantly surprised, and 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 I hoped that once he took that stronger position, he would he would build on it. Um, I fear that it was a position taken for. Uh, cynical political reasons, um, be- because Liz Truss had such a strong and and, and a good track record of taking st- a strong stand on China. He he knew he had to um, demonstrate uh, his strength on the issue as as well. Um, and there are a number of things that that indicate that he has really slipped from that uh, position. For example, uh, he promised. I, I think his words were on day one, or if it wasn't on day one, it was certainly very early on uh, that in that if he was prime minister, he would. Um, uh, shut down Confucius Institutes. Uh, well, nothing has happened on that uh, yet. I, there was an announcement the other day about uh, stopping government funding for um, academics in uh, Conf- Chinese academics in in Confucius Institutes. Um, my my answer to that is we should never have been funding uh, that that in the first place. But that's a step forward. But there's still no a- action on his pledge to to close Confucius Institutes. Um, similarly, there's been no action on the secret Chinese police stations. Um, there was uh, no, basically, no action on the Manchester consulate uh, incident. Um, uh, you know, the diplomats there who beat up Hong Kongers outside and and dragged into the the consulate should have been expelled immediately. And instead, a, a process was allowed to drag on, which resulted in them leaving voluntarily um, and and with no um, 
penalty uh, against them. And then lastly, I think what is particularly worrying is um, the government's uh, real apparent reluctance to speak out for Jimmy Lai, who is a British citizen, uh, who's in prison in Hong Kong um, and who probably uh, will face the rest of his years uh, in jail. Uh, and um, and Jimmy Lai's son, Sebastian Lai, who's been in the UK this past week and, and earlier in the year, has made repeated requests to meet uh, the prime minister and the foreign secretary um, uh, to talk about his father's case and, and has had no success. He has met Anne-Marie Trevelyan and uh, we're grateful for that. But um, but I think that if Rishi Sunak was uh, to be true to his word over um, the position he took in the leadership election, he should be, be speaking out himself for Jimmy Lai. He should be shutting down the Chinese secret police stations uh, and Confucius Institutes, to, to name just three examples. I, I would just say that... Um, there is, uh, there are people in the government who I know take a different view and are trying to work on these issues. Tom Tugendhat, the Minister for Security, uh, is one, and I know, um, you know, I, I believe he's working on this. So I, I give him credit, but I, I wonder why the Prime Minister hasn't acted uh, on his promises yet. Absolutely, and I met with Tom Tugendhat recently. He's he spoke quite extensively about some of this stuff he's planning on China, in particular. Uh, the debate around TikTok as well, access to that on government phones and, of course, on the Confucius Institutes as well. But I did want to pick up on uh, the the case of Jimmy Lai because th- this this has the potential to be a, a real flashpoint when it comes to Sino-British relations because Jimmy Lai, as you quite rightly point out, he's a, a British passport holder and he was the founder of the pro-democracy Apple Daily newspaper, which was forced to close in 2021. As you say, there's been next to no high-level representation ma- made by the government on, on this, other than, as you say, with the Indo-Pacific minister, Anne-Marie Trevelyan. But the fact that there's been no high-level meeting with the foreign secretary or even the prime minister, what, what does that say about the government's approach to Britons in Hong Kong, as well as the Hong Kongers with British national overseas status? And I suppose an extension of that, what message does that project around the world? Well, I think it's a, a very troubling message, particularly when you contrast it with, um, firstly, the position other countries take about their own nationals, um, United States in particular, but but others uh, also. Um, but secondly, uh, the position that other countries have taken on Jimmy Lai, who uh, is a British uh, citizen, um, but in fact, the United States, uh, Canada, um, the European Union, uh, and others have spoken up uh, much more robustly and, and consistency, consistently for him uh, than the UK has. Um, and uh, so I think it's it's really troubling. I think there is um, a, a view or at least a, um, a sort of claim by the, the government that the rationale behind not speaking up is that they think uh, it could make the situation worse for him. I think my response to that is, firstly, he's had several years uh, in jail, um, some of which were awaiting trial, denied bail. Uh, on trumped-up charges, uh, but he faces his national security law trial uh, later this year, um, uh, and uh, that is very likely to result in a, a very long sentence, quite possibly meaning the rest of his life. So, in a sense, how much worse uh, could it get? But, but more importantly, um, I could understand that rationale if um, they were not hearing from the family or. Um, there was no indication from Jimmy Lai that he wanted uh, them to speak up. Um, but in actual fact, the, uh, Sebastian Lai has made several requests to meet the prime minister, has, has called on his international legal team, have called on the government to speak out. And we know that Jimmy Lai 
wants us to speak out. Um, uh, so, uh, so that rationale doesn't really hold. And at the very least, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary should meet Sebastian so that they could hear more directly from the family what actually Jimmy and the family want. And then they're better placed to, uh, to, to act accordingly. So just to move away from Hong Kong slightly, I'd like to ask you about the broader view of the West around the world in relation to China, because one of the West's biggest successes in recent years has been the united approach towards supporting Ukraine following Russia's illegal invasion last year. But in recent weeks and months, uh, President Xi Jinping has been offering to negotiate a peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine. Now, given China's frankly appalling human rights record and the belligerent attitudes towards Taiwan, would China successfully negotiating an end to this war be a failure of the West? I, I think it would. And it certainly would be a, a boost to China's um, uh, sense of importance on the, the world stage. Um, and I, I, I'm, of course, very distrustful of China's um, motives, but also its ability really to uh, negotiate uh, a, a ceasefire. I think President Zelensky is uh, right and, and wise to be um, responding to that. And uh, he had his first call with Xi Jinping uh, the other day. And I think he was right to do that because uh, he doesn't want to be in a position where he's um, seen to be sort of refusing uh, peace initiatives. Um, but obviously he needs to, and I'm sure no doubt he will, he's been such a courageous leader, uh, he, he will... Um, uh, want to put Ukraine's interests uh, first. Um, but I think the West must really step up uh, to make sure that uh, any peace agreement that does come at some point um, is one, firstly, that really uh, uh, rights the wrongs and protects Ukraine's uh, interests, but secondly, does not cede any uh, status or, or um, credit uh, to China. Um, if China wants to contribute to the process alongside the West, that's perhaps a different matter. But if China is seen to have brokered this, I think that would be a, a, a bad situation for the West. I just want to briefly ask you about a report that was in The Telegraph this week, that the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, is going to be sending his vice president, Han Zheng, who is regarded as the architect of the clampdown on democracy in Hong Kong, as his representative to the coronation next week. What do you make of President Xi's decision? And what does it say about his attitude towards the United Kingdom? I, I think it has to be a, a very direct uh, um, and deliberate insults to the UK, to uh, the king himself, uh, uh, and to um, Hong Kong and to the values that we uh, that we hold dear. Um, he could have sent uh, any number of uh, representatives. He could have sent the foreign minister. He could have sent the ambassador in London. He could, he could have sent uh, all sorts of other people. And to to choose the man who, as you say, is described as the architect of the crackdown in Hong Kong was responsible for Hong Kong policy um, in Beijing, uh, particularly during the 2019-2020 period when the national security law, a very draconian law, was imposed on Hong Kong. Uh, that can only be um, a, a deliberate uh, snub. And and I personally think that um, uh, Britain, the, the palace, the foreign office uh, should um, should respond to that. And there's two possible responses uh, to make. One is to uh, withdraw the invitation uh, to say he's he's not welcome, uh, and actually to um, sanction him uh, as one of the architects of the crackdown, as as I believe uh, uh, a number of other people should be sanctioned in the Beijing and Hong Kong governments, and therefore deny him um, the right to travel here. Um, but if they chose not to go down that path, um, they should actually um, 
sees the opportunity while he's here to deliver some very clear messages to him about, for example, Jimmy Lai's uh, case, uh, but not just allow him to um, enjoy uh, the pomp and ceremony of the coronation uh, to the embarrassment of of the UK and and everyone involved, and and knowing, of course, you know, the King as as the Prince of Wales was at the handover of Hong Kong um, uh, in 1997, uh, and we know from um, his his private diaries and from other comments that have been released uh, uh, since then that uh, he had has a deep affection for Hong Kong, that he had real worries uh, for Hong Kong at the time of the handover. Uh, and I, I've no doubt that uh, the king is someone who who would be troubled by what's happened to Hong Kong. So to to have this man uh, at the king's coronation, I would have thought is is rather unfair on the king on his really important day. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Now, I'd, I'd like to move on now to ask you about your new book, The, the China Nexus, 30 Years in and Around the Chinese Communist Party's Tyranny. Now, last time we spoke, you were putting the finishing touches to the book, crossing T's, dotting I's and all that. But now that it's published, and from what I've seen, it's been very well received. Can you give an overview of what the book's about and just some of the issues and themes it covers? Well, thank you. Um, yes, it's um, essentially an attempt to try to uh, tell the story of the Chinese Communist Party's uh, repression uh, across the board. So uh, one of the reasons I decided to write it was that uh, there were thousands of books on China and some very, very good ones. But um, mostly they're focused on a particular aspect. Um, uh, and there are very few, indeed, if any, that really put all the elements together. So um, I have chapters in the book on the Uyghur genocide, uh, the atrocities in Tibet, uh, the crackdown in Hong Kong, um, the persecution of Christians and other religious uh, minorities, um, forced organ harvesting, um, the crackdown on, on dissidents and lawyers and civil society uh, in mainland China itself. Um, and then I also have chapters on um, Beijing's uh, relationships with two other dictatorships on its borders, both of which cu countries that I've worked on for a long time, uh, Burma or Myanmar uh, and North Korea. Um, a chapter on the threats to Taiwan and a final chapter on what the international community uh, as a whole um, should, and particularly the free world, uh, should be doing in response to all these questions and and looking also at, at China's threats to uh, our freedoms here at home. And I put all this in um, a somewhat personal context. It's not at all uh, a personal memoir. It's very much about the issues I've just mentioned. Um, but I first went to China when I was 18 years old to teach English in Qingdao on the East Coast. And I traveled widely in China, lived in Hong Kong for five years. And so I draw on my uh, personal experiences of uh, living and traveling in and around uh, China and, and in Hong Kong um, and, and put the issues in that context, because I want the reader to, uh, to read the book knowing that um, it's not some abstract uh, sort of study written by someone sitting in a, an armchair in London. Um, uh, it's, it's written by somebody who, who uh, 
uh, has spent a lot of time in, in and around China, has lots of Chinese friends, and uh, has that personal commitment to China. Yeah, whilst the book offers that very strong analysis on China, CCP's actions, international relations, that personal experience and personal element that you've added to the book, it, as you say, it, it makes it more more personal. It makes it uh, much closer because, as you said, there is a tendency when we discuss China to think about it in somewhat academic or abstract ter- terms. And so to have it in that personal perspective, I think, offers a certainly a fresh insight and one point in the book in particular, you write about your very high profile removal from Hong Kong. So for listeners unaware of your story, could you just explain what happened to you and some of the international reaction to it? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I, I begin the introduction to the book w- with this. Um, essentially, what happened was, um, I mean, I had lived in Hong Kong from 1997 to 2002 I'd gone back quite often over the years since 2002. And in uh, October 2017, um, I we were I was preparing actually to launch um, H- Hong Kong Watch, the organization I now lead, uh, which we launched in December 2017. But in preparation for that, I uh, felt it was important to make another visit to Hong Kong. The visit was intended to be very low key. I was not planning to make any big speeches or do media or uh, organize any rallies or, or anything sort of provocative. Um, I was simply going to uh, meet old friends and new contacts privately uh, to get an update from them on the situation and, and on their, their thinking. Um, and what happened was, unfortunately, the Chinese uh, authorities somehow found out in advance that I was going. Um, I did get some warnings uh, in the days leading up to my um uh, departure to Hong Kong. I was actually in Bangkok at a conference and I got a, a phone call from a British member of parliament uh, who's someone I I know and count as a friend. Um, and he had received um, uh, calls from somebody in the Chinese embassy telling him that they'd found out I was going, they were very angry that I was going and they wanted him to tell me uh, not to go. And he made it clear he wasn't telling me not to go, but he was just uh, alerting me to uh, this this potential problem. Anyway, what happened was uh, I took advice before going and most of, uh, well, unanimously, all of my contacts, high level Hong Kong political activists, but also political figures in London, um, said to me they thought that uh, it should be no problem that I, I would still be allowed uh, into Hong Kong and that basically the Chinese uh, embassy was trying to threaten me and intimidate me into not going, um, but that uh, if I uh, arrived in Hong Kong, um, the decision would be in the hands of Hong Kong immigration, they thought, and therefore there should be no problem. But they also said to me, if in the unlikely event, the uh, Beijing intervenes uh, in Hong Kong's immigration uh, policy and denies you entry, the world needs to know because this hasn't happened before and it would be a serious indicated that things are going wrong in Hong Kong. So I agreed, I flew to Hong Kong, and it turned out they were more serious than we realized. And um, I was stopped at the immigration desk, questioned for a bit, and then put back on a flight. And it became quite a big story at the the time, because I think I was the first uh, Westerner to have this happen. So the Foreign Secretary at the time, Boris Johnson, uh, made a very strong statement. Uh, it was raised in both houses of parliament um, and the Chinese ambassador was summoned to the foreign office. And I always said to everybody, particularly parliamentarians uh, throughout, uh, I said, I'm I'm grateful to you for raising it, um, but please raise it as a way of shining a light on the situation in Hong Kong rather than making it just about me. 
Um, but that's what what happened. I mean, it's an, a fascinating story, and the fact that you were the the first Westerner to be treated that way it really symbolised the, the the real crackdown that's happened in Hong Kong, and I think was sadly a precursor to what we now see happening on the island. You know, with the national security law, with the just simply removal of democracy from the island. One other chapter in the book, uh, which you, you've mentioned before, is the fact that it looks at China's relationship with North Korea. Now, you and I recently attended a conference in Parliament on North Korea, and you spoke not only about your visit to the secretive country in, in 2010, but also about how China's been propping up North Korea just for decades. So, could you just expand on that? Talk about your your visits for our listeners, what the country was like, and to what extent North Korea is actually beneficial for China. Yes. Um, so I ha- was very privileged to travel to North Korea with two uh, members of the House of Lords, Lord Alton and Baroness Cox, uh, who are two of the uh, strongest voices on human rights generally around the world uh, in Parliament and particularly on human rights in North Korea. So they were certainly no um, uh, appeasers by any means. The purpose of going, and this was their third visit, uh, my my first and only visit, um, the purpose was directly to um, raise human rights issues with the North Korean regime because our thinking at the time was that this is a regime that is the most closed regime in the world and we should be using every tool possible to try to prise it open. Uh, and among those tools are, are sanctions and pressure and condemnation. Um, but one of the tools uh, at the time we thought that was worth, at least worth trying was trying to see if we could have critical uh, engagement. Um, and it was fascinating. Um, I mean, on, in many ways, it was like walking into the pages of George Orwell's 1984. It, it truly is an Orwellian state. Uh, there were there was a concert we went to where halfway through the concert, uh, 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 on the screen behind the orchestra, uh, missiles were fired off and tanks rolled across the screen and the whole audience, except for three people, um, and hopefully it's obvious which three people they were, um, uh, applauded. And afterwards, one of our minders uh, said to us, I noticed you did not applaud in uh, th- those moments. And Lord Alton said, well, we didn't applaud because we don't think it's very nice to to fire missiles off in the middle of a concert or at any other time for that matter. So we we had lots of opportunities to say kind of in a polite way, somewhat provocative and confrontational uh, things and to say things that they probably had never heard face to face uh, before, uh, at least for some of them. Um, So um, it it was a very worthwhile visit. Um, uh, Of course, nothing in North Korea has changed, unfortunately, and it remains one of the most closed countries in the world and uh, a human rights uh, tragedy. And China is uh, complicit with that. China is basically keeping this regime alive financially, diplomatically. Um, it's uh, cracked down on people helping North Korean refugees uh, on the border in China. It sends North Korean refugees back to China to a uh, an appalling fate, uh, knowing that they're going to be uh, locked up in, in prison camps and, and severely tortured, sometimes even executed. And why is it doing that? I think basically because it... Uh, uh, is terrified of the idea of a um, a different uh, situation on its doorstep. It doesn't want a free, open, democratic uh, North Korea. It certainly doesn't want a united uh, Korean peninsula that is free and democratic on its doorstep. So it um, it's not necessarily um, uh, uncritical of the regime, but it certainly 
uh, is the regime's uh, biggest ally. It's absolutely fascinating to hear about what what things are really like inside this famously, well, I suppose infamously secretive country. And it is something we, we tend not to hear much about because of the nature of the, the country it, it is and the system that they operate. So it's, it's fascinating to hear the, those insights. And some, something else that you mentioned in the book is about Taiwan. And it's quite a bold statement you make in saying that the free world has no other choice but to unite in defending this country from the Chinese government's aggression. But what do you think that defense should look like? Because if Xi Jinping did launch an invasion, would you expect to see Western boots on the ground? Or would you expect to see a similar approach that's been taken with Ukraine, which is ensuring that Taiwan has all the financial and military resources it needs to defend itself? Well, I think, first of all, um, the support for, for Taiwan is absolutely essential for, for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, it's um, uh, a place that absolutely shares our democratic values. It's one of the most vibrant democracies in the region. Um, but secondly, it's, of course, the, major, the world's major producer of semiconductors, uh, the chips that are used to power all our daily um, gadgetry, our mobile phones, our laptops, everything. And for that to fall into the hands of China, I think, would be profoundly uh, dangerous. Um, uh, and, but I also think it's really important that um, the international community and the free world does whatever it can to deter um, an invasion of Taiwan by uh, taking a very strong uh, position and signaling to Beijing the consequences that there would be if, if it did launch a war on Taiwan. Exactly what we would do in the event of, an war, of a war, um, I think uh, I'm, I'm open to different ideas and I'm certainly not a military strategist. Um, uh, I, I think what I would hope for, though, is um, uh, certainly military equipment and all the other support uh, that Taiwan would need in the same way that we've given to Ukraine, but but also alongside that, certain countries actually uh, having a physical presence in the region, whether that's to engage directly in combat or provide a backup and assistance to uh, the Taiwanese um, is a matter for them. But certainly I would expect and hope that the United States would send uh, ships and, and aircraft and, and, and personnel to the region. Um, I would hope that Australia, uh, being a significant player um, in the region, uh, would do the same, um, that Japan uh, probably would play a role. Exactly what Britain uh, should do, um, I'm open-minded on, but certainly we wouldn't be able to, and we must not stand aside. So we may not send troops ourselves, um, but absolutely we should be sending, uh, in this scenario, um, uh, equipment, uh, expertise, um, uh, financial support, uh, uh, economic, uh, alongside others providing economic um, sanctions uh, that would he very heavily penalise China for such action. Um, so we we absolutely should play our part and should be in should leave no one in any doubt whose side we're on. Um, but I think the response would almost certainly be led by the United States with the other countries that I've mentioned. So just to finish then, to bring our conversation back to the UK's approach to China, because we, we do have to be realistic about dealing with them. And as you, you mentioned before, I don't think anyone would realistically call for just a total cease in partnership with them and just to complete, completely cut them off. But I do think James Cleverly is right in his speech when he says that we, we simply cannot live without China and that we need to, and quote from his speech, engage directly with China bilaterally and multilaterally. 
Now, we, we all know that their practices are abhorrent, but fundamentally, they are the second largest economy in the world and the main trading partner of just so many countries, including our own. So how do you think we should engage with China? Do you agree with James Cleverly that we should continue doing it directly and bilaterally, multilaterally? Or is there perhaps a more nuanced way of doing that? Um, I, I certainly uh, uh, agree with him that we should in- engage. And and I um, I have to say I was somewhat disappointed that he focused quite a lot of effort in, without naming them, in effectively um, criticising the, the Conservative MPs and other MPs um, who are more hawkish, um, because he, he used terms like, you know, we, we can't pull the, the shutters down on China. Well, I don't know anyone who's advocating pulling the shutters down, mm. um, not even the you know the most uh, uh, critical uh, voices in Parliament uh, are suggesting that. So the question for me is not, should we engage? It's, it's how and on whose terms uh, and for what purpose. Um, I think we should talk to China directly. We should continue to do so. Um, I, I, I'm not ne- totally opposed to ministerial visits at the right time um, and with certain conditions around them and and with expectations of what is raised during those visits. Um, uh, but uh, but that has to be judged uh, carefully in terms of, of timing. Um, I'm certainly opposed to, uh, for example, the, the governor of, um, sorry, the, yes, the governor of, of Xinjiang uh, uh, was almost due to come to the UK and, and to meet the foreign office a, a little while ago. And I thought that was appalling because um, we don't need to give the governor of Xinjiang red carpet treatment, nor do we. I mean, the foreign office then tried to justify it by saying, well, he's not going to meet us in the foreign office. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it should be a sort of um, stuck away in a corner kind of conversation either. Um, it should be at a much more senior level rather than with people like the governor of Xinjiang. Um and it should be at various opportunities at the United Nations. We should be holding them to account in the various UN bodies uh, and uh, at other multilateral uh, opportunities. So, um, of course, we should talk to them. The question is, what do we talk to them about? Um, what, what are the uh, objectives um, and and on whose terms? And what we sh- definitely shouldn't do is go down the path that we were on um, under the uh, Sino, um, uh, under the golden era, um, of of essentially not talking about human rights uh, with the aim of um, pursuing trade at all costs. We must never return to that. Um, we have started to move away from it, but not not quickly enough. And I think we should be much more robust uh, in our engagement. Absolutely. And just a final question. For listeners who are interested in reading your book, where can they find it? Well, thank you. Um, they can certainly find it on Amazon and on other uh, online um, book- bookstore uh, platforms, but also it is available, particularly if listeners go to order it um, from bookshops like uh, Waterstones, uh, Foils and, and other bookshops. And actually, I would encourage people, even if they can't find it on the shelf yet, if they, I'm told that if they actually go to a branch of Waterstones and order it, uh, that will make it more likely that Waterstones will then start stocking it uh, more more widely. So if people have the time to do that, that would be great. But otherwise, they can get it on Amazon. Benedict Rogers, thank you very much for coming back on the show and many congratulations on the new book. Thank you very much.